You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Well, good morning, church family. If you haven't done so already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible with you and you want to follow along, as we encourage you to do, you can take one of the Bibles in the pew back in front of you and turn to page 1073 so you can follow along with us this morning. So James chapter 4, as we just read. As you're turning there, let me recap a little bit for us from last week because I feel like James is building off of the end of chapter 3 for our passage today. So last week, at the end of chapter 3, Pastor Cody was showing us from God's Word how we were looking at effectively what James calls two kinds of wisdom. An earthly wisdom that, that denies that God exists, or maybe it doesn't deny He exists, but at least denies that He's in control. And we said the earthly wisdom, living by that, leads to a disordered life. And then there's a second kind of wisdom that is godly wisdom. And, and godly wisdom acknowledges not only that there's a God, but that He is the King of the universe. And living in godly wisdom leads to peace, and it leads to gladness. In today's passage, James illustrates then for us the disorder and the evil that is the result of envy and selfish ambition of earthly wisdom. But we're also going to see how to live in that godly wisdom we talked about last week as we think and as we take our sin seriously. And so we saw two pictures of wisdom last week, and this week we're going to look at two types of friendships. Friendship with the world, and friendship in a deep abiding relationship with our God. So as we like to do uh, on the screen, you'll see what if we were to boil down our passage today, we're going to see that friendship with the world produces brokenness with others and with God. But submission to God brings peace. And if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ today, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to take away. Here's what you need to apply. That the disciples of Jesus can experience the peace of God together when we take our sin seriously. So we're going to jump right into our text this morning because there's a good bit to cover. And so as we start the first three verses, James is, is giving for us what is the cause, what is the source of our conflict. And his answer to that is going to be worldliness. Let's see how he talks about it in just a moment. As we come to chapter 4, James is writing at least to some subset of the church. He's not necessarily implying that every single one of them are having conflict, but he's writing to at least a significant portion of the church to the point where it was causing division and struggle. And so out of that, these people were living according to the earthly wisdom that he talked about just last week. And these people are causing and these people are experiencing conflict, not out there, but with one another. So it got me thinking, because I think sometimes we come to passages like this. That's why we like to walk through books of the Bible, because we don't get to jump over these when we walk through all of God's Word. And and so it got me thinking, when I come to a passage like this, it's easy for me to go, yeah, I know a few people that probably should study this passage. But if I'm, let me just ask a question, and you don't have to raise your hand. Would anybody in here honestly be able to say they have experienced no conflict with someone else in the past year? Really? Yeah, I got the chuckles because I think we know I probably could have shortened that time frame, but I thought a year would just make sure we got everybody. So I would just say most of us, not to assume everybody, most of us from time to time experience conflict with somebody else. And so we need to pay attention to this passage 
I needed it this week. I think we need it today. So James, as he's been doing, Paul likes to kind of build up sometimes. James just kind of hits it. And so he starts off in verse 1 by asking us two questions to get right to the heart of the matter. And the first one is simply this. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Your, your translation may say quarrels and fights. What's the source? James is using strong language. It's, 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 it's battle language. I don't think he's pointing to the fact that they were legitimately coming to church and, and having fist fights. I don't think that's what he's talking about. But he's using strong language because while it may have not have been physical fights, there were external conflicts for sure. And the weight of it is on how dangerous these conflicts can become. And so he doesn't want us to take them lightly. Now look, I get it. Sometimes there are legitimate conflicts, legitimate quarrels that have been born from legitimate sins and legitimate harms upon you or someone else. So sometimes quarrels are legitimate. Sometimes fights aren't evil. But that's not what James is talking about. Here, James is talking about quarreling and fighting and conflict that happens as a result of us living according to earthly wisdom, where it becomes about us. And if we don't believe me, just read the second question that James asks. And he asks it in a way that he expects us to agree with him. He says, don't they, don't these fights, don't these quarrels, don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? And the word passions here, we can, we can sometimes gloss over that. The word that is behind this word in, in the original language is the same word that we get hedonism from. And if you're not familiar with that philosophy, it's a, it's a worldview, it's a philosophy that says that the chief end of us, the, the highest good, would be us to seek our own pleasure, our own sensual self-indulgences. That's what he's saying. James is saying at the, at the core of all of our conflicts is our own worldly passions. So what causes our fights? What causes our conflicts? It's not what's going on around you. It's not that crazy family member. It's not that annoying neighbor. It's not that irrational boss. That's not what James says is ultimately our problem. What James says our ultimate problem is, is us. Our hearts, the fights, the quarrels, they have everything to do with you and with me. It's not circumstantial. It's in reality, internally, a spiritual reality. And that reality is that we desire so often for ourselves, for our own pleasure, for our own selfish ambition. And at the end of the day, our hearts, not our circumstances, are what need change. So then James builds on that. Look at verses 2 and 3. Let me ask you this question as you look over them. What would you call someone who feels like and is only consumed with their own desires for what they want? And then let me go beyond that. They even expect that you exist for their same pleasure. Let me give you a hint. It's often what sometimes one generation will say about a younger generation. They are what? They are entitled. Not only is it about their own passion, but they actually believe that you also exist for their own good. So it's really easy for us to cast off to someone else. They were born into a certain situation. They're from a certain area. They're born in a certain generation, and they're entitled. But I think if we're really honest, every single one of us would probably fall into that at some point. Here's why. Because if we're really honest, I think at some point we all struggle with expecting of God. God, I have in my mind what my world should look like, what my circumstances should look like. I expect you to give me a certain thing. And when my life doesn't work out the way that I expect, 
Well, I don't just get hurt. I get angry. Because my expectation of others and my expectation of God, they're not met. So I'm not just hurt, I'm angry. I don't know about you, that kind of sounds like entitlement. And what does entitlement lead to over a long period of time? Frustration? Yeah, of course. Disappointment? Oh, sure. But if we really look at the heart level, entitlement over a long period of time breeds contempt. Not only do entitled people grow in their contempt towards others, eventually their contempt doesn't go towards you and me, it goes towards God. So much so that James says they don't even go to God asking. When, everything's, when there's conflict, when there's struggle, when life's not working out the way I think it should be, we ought to be running to our gracious God, but that's not what James says they're doing. Because when you're entitled, you don't need anything else. You just expect it to be a certain way. Look at how James describes it in 2 and 3. He says, you desire and you don't have. You murder, you covet, and cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. See the progression? You have and you don't get. I mean, I'm sorry, you want and you don't get. You, you fight and you do whatever you can to get what you want. Now, I don't think they were, there was actually first-degree murder going on. I think that, again, James is using hyperbolic language. But the damage to the community of believers isn't hyperbolic. It was damaging that they were spending so much of their energy going after what they wanted and not getting it. And so think about it. If we have a community, and I'm talking within the church, if we have a community full of people who are seeking their own desires, desires that are motivated by a longing for earthly pleasures, we're going to have disorder. And here's how I know that. Because at some point, my desire for me and my desire for the things that I want is going to come in contact and intersect with your desires for what you want. Because I expect that you want my desires. And you expect that I want your desires. And at some point, those are going to cross, and it's not going to be pretty. And so instead of going to our God, we fight, and we continue to have conflict. And James says about these people, even when their life is full of conflict and disorder, these people aren't going to God in prayer. And even when they bother to, by the way, they're doing so in order to get more for this world, more that they want in this world. So even their prayers, when they bother to do so, are self-centered prayers. Jesus, on the other hand, taught us something very different when he taught us how to pray. How does his prayer start? Depending on how the translation you maybe memorized when you were younger. But our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. We're to seek what's best for God's name. We're to be seeking what his will is and what he wants for us and what he wants for himself. But there is conflict ultimately because what we really want, what our heart really says, is not your will be done, not your name be great, but my will be done, and my name be great. So see, at the end of this, when James finishes verse 3, we really see that the conflict that's going on isn't ultimately a conflict between you and me or others. The conflict ultimately is a hostility towards our God. Because I don't actually want what, what he wants. I don't actually want his name to be made famous as supreme. I want what's best for me. I want you to know me. I want my fame to be great. So that's James 4, 1 through 3. And all of this leads to a really startling statement at the beginning of verse 4. 
as we see, and I believe this is God's evaluation of our self-centered desires. It's His evaluation of our worldliness. And He says in verse 4, You adulterous people. For, for most of the letter, James has been, has been engaging us and has been talking to the, his readers as calling them brothers and sisters. And here, in a stark contrast, in a complete change, he just goes, You're adulterers. Throughout the Bible, God has pictured his relationship with his people in the, in the context of a marriage. And so I think James is building on that because when God's people forsake him in favor of their, their selves or their own passions, it's a picture of spiritual unfaithfulness or spiritual adultery. The more we're conformed to the pattern of this world, the more we live like this world, the more we love the things of this world, the more we betray our God. And in effect, we cheat on Him. That's what, that's what James is saying, who we are when we live in earthly wisdom. In addition to being labeled as adulteresses, when we don't get what we want from others or out of our life, eventually, as I said, we turn our frustrations towards God. And in effect, we say to God, God, I don't trust that you're good. God, I don't trust that you know what's best for me. You don't give me what I want. I don't believe you're enough for me. So I'm going to take my friendship away from you, and I'm going to give it to those things which are most hostile to him. Right? The rest of verse 6 says, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? There's no middle ground. So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Let me explain really quickly. I know it uses the word friendship, and unfortunately, because of the way we use the word friendship today, we miss some of the weight of this. We think of friendship as those people that you're connected to on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or however many other social media platforms there are out there now. And I've seen a picture of them. Maybe I wrote them happy birthday once a year. Uh, I've somewhat stalked them because I kind of know what's going on in their life, and I assume we're friends. That is not what James means. You got to think in the context of when he's writing, there are, you know, people living in the same area for multiple generations, five, six, seven, eight generations. And these people are connected in ways in which they, there's no secrets. They, they know each other intimately. They, they know what's going on in their lives. They've walked together. They've lived life together for a long time. And so friendship here has the idea of peace and commitment. And so understand it in, 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 op, in opposition or in contrast to division or hostility. We were made a friend of God, not because we were buddy-buddy with Him, but when Christ died on the cross, and if you've placed saving faith in Him, you're made a friend of God in that you're no longer His enemy, but you now have peace with Him. That's what it's saying here. And so what it's saying is, there's only room for one on the throne of your heart. And my allegiance can only go to one master. And so when I seek my own pleasure, when I seek my own fame, it's as though I'm removing my friendship with God. God, you mold me, you shape me, you lead me, and I take that and I give it to his enemy, the world and its leader, the devil. And I'm saying to it, world, you mold me, you shape me, you lead me, you give me what I think I want. Because there's a treasure that I want that is greater in my mind than that. That is God himself. That's what we're saying when we have friendship with the world. And it's an assault on the beauty. It's an assault on the mercy of our God. And the reality is we're all guilty of it. So that's God's evaluation of our worldliness. That we are, in effect, an adulteress. 
It's though we were a prostitute who's been redeemed, bought, and, and, and loved and cared for as a wife, and then we've turned around and left him to go back to the shame of a street corner. That's what God says, and that's how he evaluates our, our living in earthly wisdom, our desire for our own, shame, our own fame, our own desires. I'll be honest, that's a harsh word. But what's crazier and what's just... I don't even have a word for how crazy this is, is God's response to our worldliness. He's just declared us to be adulterers. He's just declared us to be people who totally forsook him, and and when he's done everything necessary for us, and then his response in verse 5 is, do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? The word envy there, I don't really love that. It's not the most helpful translation. Some of your translations may have yearns, uh, jealously, and the emphasis there is on the yearning. And I get it, the, the jealousy of God sometimes is a confusing concept for people. So let me just put it like this. When we think of jealousy, we think of it in a very negative context. And, and the reason of that is because it's usually birthed out of fear. It's usually birthed out of some unmet desire, insecurity, or discontentment. But God isn't jealous in that way. God's not jealous of you. We, we have nothing compared to God. God's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. Let me give you an example. I've got two daughters who I love, obviously, very dearly. And as they get older, they're going to start to notice boys around them and other places in a way they haven't before. And those boys, likewise, are probably going to notice them in ways they haven't before. And as a loving father, I'm going to be acutely aware and very protective of their hearts and their affections. I'm not jealous of my daughters, but I'm jealous for their good. I want, with a deep, consuming passion, their protection and their greatest good. In a more perfect, in a more complete way, God put a spirit inside of you, if you're a believer in Jesus. And His glory is at stake in your life. And when you turn away from him, when you turn to the things of this world, his glory and your joy are at stake. And he cares deeply about both of those things. Oh, and then I love verse 6, the first part of verse 6. What's God's response to our adultery? What's his response to this type of hostility? What's God's response to our rebelliousness? It says he gives greater grace. What? God's response to my sin, God's response to the fact that I've turned from Him is He's going to give even more grace. Why? Why would God do that? He's already done everything necessary in Christ and I've accepted Him and I turn away again. You'd think He'd just be like, I'm done with that. I'm done with you. But here's what makes God so wonderful. God doesn't respond to you and me based on some our goodness or lack thereof. God responds based on his own faithfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How's he going to do that? Because it says, He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Look, I don't know where you're coming from this morning. I don't know what motivated you to be here. And maybe the very idea of God yearning for your soul seems ridiculous. 
Maybe you're, you're evaluating your life and you're looking at all the things that you've done and all the ways you've acted and, and you feel like somehow I've done too much that there's no way God could love me. Or maybe I've walked too far down this path. There's really no good hope back. Let me, let me read one more passage for you out of Romans 5.20. It says, The law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I don't have time to unpack all of that, but effectively what's happening, just picture Moses coming down off the mountain with the, with the commandments of God, the, the law of God. And while he's up there getting those, these people are down here making a, an idol to a, a golden calf, and they're worshiping that. And Moses comes down with the law, and he starts reading it. And they're looking at the calf, and they're listening to this, and all of a sudden, it's not lining up. And all of a sudden, every time he's reading, their sin just feels like it's piling up. But Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's good news. As their awareness of their sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. No matter what you've done, no matter how much of that thing you've done, no matter how high your sin volume is, it can never top God's ever-abundant grace. And grace doesn't win by a hair. So to put it in March Madness terms, grace didn't hit a three at the end of the game to kind of bail us out. No, no, grace blew sin out of the stadium. That's what abounding grace means. And that's good news this morning for you and me. So how does God respond to our adultery? By showering you with so much grace that it doesn't only just wash it off of you, but it goes down the drain and out your house never to be seen again. And nothing you could have done, nothing you have or ever will do, can out God's grace. Because He gives more grace. So we're kind of a wretched people, and the conflict in our lives is mostly because of our hearts. God declares us to be people who are, in effect, friends of the world, adulterers to what he's given us, and his response is grace. So for the rest of this passage today, this is our response to God's grace. How should we respond? It's wrapped in the end of verse 6 and verse 10, it's wrapped in this idea of humility. So we will humble ourselves and submit to God. That is our proper response to God's abounding grace. He says at the end of verse 6, resist the proud. God, resist the proud and give grace to the humble. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Our response to God's grace. Our response to living and in, 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 in to live in godly wisdom and not the earthly wisdom we talked about last week that brings disorder and brings conflict is to humbly submit to our God. Submit's a word that a lot of people throw around. Let me just make it real clear or make it really simple for today. In this context, think of submit as simply letting go. When we submit to someone else and someone else's authority, we're letting go of having to be in control and we're trusting in their leadership. So what are you letting go of? What is James saying submit, let go of in order to submit to God? I would say it's the things in your life that are causing stress and anxiety and disorder and fear and whatever else you may be struggling with. Striving after worldly pleasures hasn't brought peace in your life, but it's brought frustration. 
So why then, church, because I'm no different, I hold on to these things sometimes. Why? Why do we hold on to these things when it seems to make the most sense just to let them go? Well, I think they act like a pacifier to us. I have an almost two-year-old, and he still wants his passy at night when he gets tired. Sometimes we want him to have his passy just to be quiet. But, but for the context of this, he wants his passy when he's tired. Now look, I know there's a discussion about whether or not a kid should even use a passy, but for this example, he has a passy. But I think we can all at least agree, it's not our expectation that at some point he's going to go off to college or whatever God's going to call him to do, still with his passy. So if it's not ultimately what's best for him, why does he want it now? I think it provides immediate and tangible comfort. In the same way, why do we chase after the things of this world that we know only bring us heartache, they bring division, they don't bring lasting peace? Why do we do that? Because I believe they bring immediate and tangible comfort, however fleeting that comfort may be. But here's the thing. What's actually more comforting than the worldly pleasures that we spend so much energy on is actually getting off the throne of my own heart and letting God be king. And why do I say that? Because when I do an honest evaluation of myself, I'm a crummy king. I'm, when I'm ruling, I'm using the earthly wisdom that Pastor Cody was talking about last week that leads to a disordered life full of stress and anxiety and fear. So then if we need to get off the throne, which I think we do, and we, and we need to submit to God as our king of our lives, then how do we do that? James gives us four things right here. Number one, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. James says to stop resisting God and his leadership. I mean, stop, that says to stop resisting God and start resisting the devil. From the very beginning, from Adam and Eve all the way up until now, we have been believing the lies of the devil, that somehow we need something, we need someone, we need some status more than God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. How do we do that? How did Jesus do it when he was tempted in the desert? With the word of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you, but as such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but, the temptation, but, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So far in James 4, we've seen we have a legitimate enemy. And we have a, we have a flesh that wants to pull away from God. Put together, that's a pretty powerful, rebellious force that draws us from the Lord towards friendship with the world. But the Bible says submit. How do we do that? By resisting. And that resisting right there, by the way, that's aggressive language. That's not passive. That's not stick my fingers in my ears and just hope it all goes away. No, that is turning instead of running, turning, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, fighting sin. The promise of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, is that we can actually have victory over sin. We don't have to sin anymore. Now, I still stumble, but I don't have to. As I resist, God provides a way. He's faithful to provide a way out. As we fight off and we resist the devil over and over again, we continue to have victory in sin with the power of the Holy Spirit. Number two, beginning of verse 8, it says, draw near to God. Not only are we to put up active resistance to the devil, we're supposed to, that turning, it's not just turn away from the devil and then just kind of turn to whatever. You turn away from the devil to turn towards the Lord 
with an embedded promise that God's drawing near to you. And you don't understand this as like some kind of eternal uh, spiritual standing. We're not talking about somehow you could run so far from God if you're in Christ that you could somehow lose your salvation. But instead it's speaking of how intimate your relationship with God is right now. So how do we draw near to God? We've talked about this a bunch. God gives us three, there's more, but he gives us here for today three main ways. One's the word of God. And I don't mean, by the way, just reading God's word. Sometimes we talk about reading God's Word and it kind of implies that we approach it like we do our favorite news article or our favorite blog. I don't want you just to know about the God of the Bible. I want you to actually know the God who's revealed in the Bible. Don't just read it for facts and figures, but but read it to gaze upon the beauty of the one that's revealed in it. I want you to be able to open your Bible to James chapter 4 verse 6 and I want you to see that he gives more grace. And I want you to be fueled to understand, to see God is for you and not against you. And that in turn fuels more affection and greater affection for God. That's knowing the God of the Bible. Secondly, he gives us a community of believers around us. God wants you to know him through his saints, through other Christians. God's called you to himself, absolutely. But God's not only called you to himself. He's called you to others as well. Some of God's choicest blessings come when we're around other people who are walking right alongside of him as well. Community is an indispensable part of Christian maturation. We believe it is our job, it is our goal, it is our mission here at Covenant Hope to make mature disciples, and that can't be done on your own. Look, if the extent of your involvement here at Covenant Hope, let me just, this is an encouragement, but it, it, it might not sound like it at first, but it is. If your extent of your involvement here at Covenant Hope is coming here to our worship gathering on Sunday morning because you like how, and I know Nate's not here today, but you like how him and the team uh, play music and sing, you like how Pastor Cody or myself are speaking, man, thank you, that's great. Until it's not. Until life happens. Because when life happens, that's going to be wholly inadequate. Because when life happens, you're going to have wanted and want men and women in your life, brothers and sisters in Christ, deeply embedded in your life in that moment. So I encourage you this morning as you think through, what does it look like for you to be following, maturing in Christ to deepen your relationship with His other followers? And thirdly, there are leaders and those who are further along in their walk with the Lord that God gives us to encourage us to seek out help from, to point us even more deeply to Christ. So resist the devil, draw near to God. Thirdly, pursue purity holistically. The rest of verse 8 says, Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Not only are we resisting the devil, not only are we drawing near to God, but we actually get to participate in the pursuit of purity. And as Cody said last week, when we're looking at godly wisdom, the overarching theme there was it's pure. Our lives should be as well. But also see in this, it doesn't just say cleanse your hands. It says cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Why? Because we can't simply be concerned with our outward actions. Our purity must go way beyond that, all the way deep down into our hearts and to our desires. As Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. The Holy Spirit desires to do the things of the Lord. Our flesh that is still we're waging war against doesn't. 
And so James calls us double-minded because we are always in this constant battle. One day when Christ returns, that'll be over, but for now we are struggling. But even in the pursuit, I believe God's honored, so pursue purity holistically. And then the fourthly, it says, treat sin seriously. Don't you just love this verse? Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Man, that's super encouraging. Super encouraging. And that's not, it's depressing. But here's why. I think James does that. Because if you're living in earthly wisdom, if you're seeking out the, the pleasures of this world, you don't think sin's all that bad. Matt Chandler says that levity is the drug of choice in our culture. And I, I think he's right. And even not just our culture, but even within the church sometimes. We may not make light of sin, at least categorically, but we don't grieve it all that much either. We may grieve other people's sins, but we don't often grieve our sin. James teaches us, don't be trivial about sin. In fact, the Puritans would sometimes pray for tears. If they, if they perceived that they weren't taking their sin serious enough, they would ask the Lord to grant them tears so they may understand and feel how awful, how wretched their sins really were. We don't, we don't really seem to want that too much today. But church, it's often in our tears and in our brokenness over sin that God's grace shines through so brightly. It lifts us up beyond anything we can fathom, and our joy is made so real and so deep so we need to treat our sin seriously. And as he started in verse 6, so he ends here in verse 10, we are to be humble before our God. Everything from verse 7 flies in the face of the counsel we're given today from outside of these walls. We're told that the solution to your disordered life is what? Well, it's first to love yourself, and then it's to live out your truth. As we looked at the end of last week, that sounds a whole lot like earthly wisdom. And it doesn't lead to peace. I feel like if everybody just took a step back and evaluated, it doesn't lead to peace. It leads to all kinds of evil and anxiety and fear. It's not order, but disorder. But of course it does. I told you earlier, James is writing to the church. I want to limit the discussion here not to everything out there, but, but to us. We have a community of people Right? We have husbands, wives, parents to kids, friends to other friends, and, and small groups meeting together. And we have people here that we're, if we're most concerned with ourselves, with our pleasures, with our fame, there's going to be disorder. They're going to interact, and it's not going to be great. Instead of looking out for number one, humble yourself and watch God lift you up. The Bible calls us his children. The Bible calls us joint heirs with Christ. Look, I've watched a lot of princess movies over the last few years. Um, we're not here to grade those, but I have. But here's one thing I, th I think is pretty clear. If you're a son or a daughter of the king, what's your title? Prince or princess? I don't know how much higher we need to be exalted. So as we conclude today, let me go back to the very top that James asked in verse 1. 
why are, there quar- why are there quarrels and fights among us? Because at times, we are a bunch of people that want all the same thing. We want our own glory to be recognized. We want our own pleasures to be met. The problem is, that doesn't really work all that well together. Because I can't lift you up when I'm so consumed for wanting to be known and respected myself. I can't be all about serving you when I only want to be served. And I certainly can't be all about God's fame and God's glory when I'm working so hard for my own. The fix for our heart kind of sounds simple. But we often fail. Humble yourselves before the Lord and let go of your felt need to be king or queen of your own life. We said in the beginning, friendship with the world brings brokenness and, and with others and with God. But we also said, disciples of Jesus can experience the peace of God together when we take sin seriously. Church, isn't that what we really want anyway? There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of things we can go after. But at the end of the day, don't we ultimately just want peace? The pleasures of this world, they're fleeting. That's why we have to keep going back over and over and over again to them. But peace lasts. What we really want is in our hearts and our minds is a peace. And a peace that we don't feel the, the, the need to, to satiate the desires that never make us feel whole. It's a peace that frees us from having to defend our own honor and our own pride. It's a peace that frees us up to serve others expecting nothing in return. Because when we look at our salvation, we realize we brought nothing to the table to Christ. And yet He did everything necessary to serve us and make us right with God. Ultimately, our greatest desire isn't worldly pleasures, but the eternal peace of God in Jesus Christ. Church, pray with me this morning. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you challenge us to view who we are uh, accurately. And God, this text even is written, is directed at, at believers, ones who have already come and should understand and know how great you are in Christ and all that he's done for us. And God, the reality is, though, at times we've turned away from that. That the immediacy and the, and the tangibleness of, of some of the worldly pleasures feel like they're going to be better than, than the perceived weight and the perceived uh, stuff that we do not have from you. God, help us today to God, help us today to treasure you more than the things of this world. God, we, we recognize that on this, until Christ returns, and, and while we're still on this earth, God, we are going to have that war waging inside of us. But God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to point it out as sin in our lives, that we won't push it aside, that we won't take our friendship and asking you to mold us, you to shape us, you to lead us, and And give that over to the things of the world that you died specifically to to win over. God, we thank you for the book of James. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here and, and all around the world who are worshiping you today. God, may you continue to give us a love for you first and foremost to place you as the king of our lives. So that we may not have conflict within our own body. And that when we do, God, that we'll be rightly brought back to understanding that the issue is not circumstances out there, but hearts inside of us. God, thank you for your word. And encourage us today and this week to give all that we have humbly submitting to you. God, we love you in the name of Jesus. Amen.